This is the first talk in a series of talks on the seven stages of the spiritual path, titled Stage 1, Awakening of Faith, recorded March 9, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning I'm going to begin a new series, or perhaps a sub-series, of talks about the seven stages of the spiritual path. First of all, let me give you a little background on this idea of a path unfolding in stages. This goes all the way back to shamanic traditions. Uh, shamanic initiation ceremonies from Siberia to the Americas to Africa to Australia all involve what Iliadi called an ecstatic ascent from earth to heaven or from the human to the god realm. And this is often enacted by a shaman, shamanic candidate through a ritual process of climbing a tree or a ladder or a rope or something like that. Usually if it's a tree uh, or a ladder, it has seven or nine or five rungs or branches, each of which symbolize some cosmic realm. So the idea is the candidate is ritually climbing through the cosmic realms back to the, the God realm, which is symbolized by heaven, by space. Uh, to give but one example, and there are numerous, numerous examples, this is from the uh, shamanic traditions of the Carib Indians in South America. And a prospective candidate climbs what's called Grandfather Vulture's Ladder, some kind of spiral, actually, some sort of spiral ladder made out of branches or whatever. And during this, uh, this climb, the candidate encounters, first of all, a female water spirit who gives some charms and formulas and becomes his guide for the rest of the journey. And then uh, at a certain point, the candidate comes to what's called the crossroads of life and death. And at that point, the candidate can visit various realms. One of the realms is called uh, Land Without Evening, and the other realm is called Land Without Dawn. I can't tell you exactly what sorts of states these represent. The farther we go back into shamanic traditions, the harder it is for us to imagine what's going on. But this is clearly a uh, stages of a mystical journey. Then eventually the candidate arrives at the celestial realms, where he's dismembered by spirits. They cut him all up, all his, uh, his body and his organs and so forth. This is, a, again, a very typical motif in shamanic traditions, one of the most um, typical archetypal. And this one we can tell. This is next to last stage of gnosis, spiritual death, as it's called in many traditions. And then finally, after being dismembered, the candidates granted these mystical visions. So here we have already this idea of a path that unfolds in stages. Uh, by the way, this latter symbolism uh, is carried down into uh, later classical mystical traditions. Uh, the Hasidic masters from the Jewish tradition, for instance, say, you are like one who has been given a ladder. The light that shines in you is a gift from above. And uh, the desert father of uh, Christianity, Isaac the Syrian, writes, the ladder that leads to the kingdom is within you and is found in your own soul. Dive into yourself, and in your soul you will find the rungs by which to ascend. And you'll find this idea of a ladder in the Sufi tradition and so forth. 
uh, again, as a little digression, you've heard of the Indian rope trick where the fakir throws a rope up in the sky and climbs. Uh, this actually can be traced back to this original shamanic idea that there was uh, originally a connection between heaven and earth. They got severed and broken. So the idea of a shamanic a journey is to ascend back to that origin from which all this came. And then in classical Hindu yoga, Patanjali's yoga, they distinguish eight limbs or branches that you follow as you're uh, learning how to do this yoga. The, the first involves moral restraints and virtues. Then there are various yogic postures you learn. And then you go through various stages of concentration and meditation until you finally reach liberation. So here's again a, uh, a sense of the yogic path unfolding in these various stages. In different schools or different mystics within a particular tradition may have different stages. They may classify the path by uh, different stages. For instance, Meister Eckhart in the Christian tradition designates six stages. Teresa of Avila describes these seven mansions that you enter as you go on this inward journey. Uh, Evelyn Underhill uh, has five stages. Uh, in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, the standard designation are ten stages the Bodhisattva's path. But if you go to Tibet, you find they have uh, 11, 12, 14, 16 stages. Uh, a lot of the stages are after death, take place after death. In the Sufi tradition, you'll find mentioned four stages, five stages, seven stages, according to different Sufi masters or different Sufi schools. But the Sufis make a very important distinction, which would apply in all traditions, uh, but the Sufis have an elegant way of saying it. And they note that there's a difference between stations and states. The stations being like a stage. Stations are kind of plateaus that you reach. States are transitory experiences, like states of bliss, or as intoxication as the Sufis call it or perhaps visionary experiences and so forth. Experiences that uh, come and go, that pass, you might have during meditation or something like that. But uh, when you reach a certain station, let's say a station of becoming detached from worldly things, so you no longer uh, are looking for happiness in the pursuit of worldly things, that is permanent, that doesn't pass away. Moreover, the stations, the stages, are cumulative. Here's how Ibn Arabi uh, expresses this. He's one of the great Sufis. He says, Passing from station to station does not mean that you abandon a station. On the contrary, you acquire that which is higher than it without departing from the station within which you dwell. It is a passage to the second station, but not from the first. So the idea is what you uh, acquire, particularly in terms of virtues in each station, you take with you into the next station. So if you've been working on patience in one station uh, and you move on to another station, you don't abandon patience. Uh, patience comes with you. So I mentioned these various traditions and their various ways of designating the stages of a spiritual path so that you don't get confused if you run across this. You read one tradition and they have five stages, and then you read another tradition, you have seven stages, and then people start wondering, well, which tradition's correct? Which one's the, the true number of stages? And it's really, uh, it's really like measuring the same highway, but you're uh, using a, a mileage or kilometers or whatever. 
different traditions emphasize different things. So in some traditions, what you go through in meditation is very important. So the stages will be more focused around that, more precise distinctions within a meditative practice. This is sometimes true of Buddhism, for instance. Uh, other traditions, the virtues will be uh, emphasized. So it's not a question of which is right or wrong. It's just a question of what sort of yardstick you're using to measure these things. I'm going to talk about seven stages in this series, and this is based on my own path and also reading in other traditions. And I would say that my emphasis is more on a sort of psycho-spiritual development, a, a more a broader development rather than uh, specifically going through a meditative practice or something like that. So I tried to include elements from all these traditions, and seven was a number that uh, was very convenient to use. So the next question is, why is it necessary to classify uh, or to break a path down into stages? Uh, many mystical teachings are stage-specific. In other words, they apply in one stage, but they don't apply in another stage. Here's how the Sufis explain this. In every station, there is an affirmation and a denial, but not all that is denied in one station is denied in the station before it, nor is all that is affirmed in one station affirmed in the station after it. So in a certain sense, a teaching can be true for one stage of the path, true in, the, in a relative sense, useful in that stage. And yet in another stage, it's no longer useful, it's no longer seen as being true or relevant. And a very good example of this is a modern confusion we have about whether stages are necessary at all, whether it's necessary to go through stages or not. There are a lot of teachings around that say, don't bother with all these stages, don't bother with all this meditation, just wake up and realize. So, why is it necessary to go through any stages in the first place? And a good example of this is the uh, teaching of the Dzogchen master, Longchenpa. Dzogchen is considered the highest, most advanced form of practice in the Tibetan tradition. And Longchenpa is an ancient Dzogchen master, 14th century or something like that. So on the one hand, he writes, sought after truth is found by not seeking it. There is no need of modification, transformation, renunciation, and antidote. In the rootless mind, pure from the beginning, there is nothing to do and no one to do it. So this makes it uh, sound like uh, you don't need to go through all these arduous disciplines and practices uh, that, uh, that you do if you're going through stages. But then Longchenpa also writes, The unexcelled Buddhahood is impossible to attain until one completes the paths and stages, because it is necessary that the defilements of the different levels be abandoned, and the virtues need to be achieved. Today there are people who say that even without relying on the paths and stages, Buddhahood will be attained. It is clear that such people are possessed by Mara. Mara is the god of illusion. Now, notice he's writing this, I said, centuries ago, so even in, in those days there was confusion about this. Do you need to go through stages? Don't you need to go through stages? Well, the first teaching is given at a very advanced stage of uh, the path, and it's actually a meditation instruction. And here you've been uh, doing these meditations where you've been focusing on the breath or doing these elaborate visualizations and so forth, and now the meditation instru instruction is drop all that. 
but it's only given after the seeker has gone through these stages and disciplines and developed uh, things like detachment and meditative stability and so forth. You can't actually do, you can't follow that instruction unless you've gone through these stages. So here's an example of two teachings from the same master in the same tradition that seem to be contradictory, but they are stage-specific. One applies to one stage, and the other applies to a different stage. So I want to point this out because, again, we often get confused by this, and knowing that there are stages in the spiritual path then allows you to understand these contradictions and sort them out. Another reason for outlining the stages of a path is that if you know what other people have gone through before you, then at certain places on a path, you will uh, know that you're not going crazy. This is especially true when you're going through episodes of what uh, St. John of the Cross called the Dark Nights of the Soul. Let me read you a description of one such episode from Catherine of Genoa. She was a great Christian mystic of the 15th century. And she writes, Incapable of feeling any joy, the soul seemed to be stifled in melancholy, completely at a loss as to what to do. Neither heaven nor earth offered it a place of rest, and it avoided the company of men and the remembrance of past joys or sadness. Now, you know, this is not a pleasant state to be in. In fact, we would uh, today describe it as, as she's depressed. She's terribly depressed here. And in uh, our modern culture, where we you know, have no idea, generally speaking, of spiritual paths and stages and uh, that you go through and so forth. The advice would be, well, you know, go down and get some Valium or, or get yourself to a therapist or something like that. Actually, in, in spiritual terms, depression, at least some forms of depression, we call spiritual depression, are very, very valuable. If you, if you interpret them right, if you read them right, it's really the body-mind shutting down and forcing you to go inward and saying, I'm disgusted with all this. I'm tired of all this. I want to look for some other way to attain happiness. Now, there are, I want to say, there are some forms of depression that I think are based on uh, biochemical disorders, particularly um, manic depressive um, syndromes. And in that case, you, uh, you still could take advantage of the depressive state, but you would do well to go get some uh, medication. <laughs> So it's not a question of one or the other. It's a question of how you look at what's happening to you. Is it something, an opportunity, or are you just going to look at it as something disastrous happening to you? You want to get over it and get rid of it as quickly as possible. And then it's also true, while no two seekers walk exactly the same path, and in fact, each of us is going to have a unique unfoldment of this path, everyone's going up the same mountain. If you're on a mystical path, everyone's going up to the same mountain and everyone's going up to the same place. And along the way, there are landmarks on this mountain, landmarks that can be pointed out and are pointed out in traditions. So to have a stage outline is like having a kind of a map. And it says, well, if you go up this side of the mountain, you're going to see a boulder here. And then if you go keep going a little farther, you're going to see a lake here and so forth. And it's very valuable to have a map on the mystical path because it helps you avoiding going around in circles. And you can. 
it's a mountain that's got a lot of brush and undergrowth and uh, all sorts of uh, things and strange, weird features. And you can find yourself, you know, wandering around and around and around the mountain and never not continuing to go up. And a lot of people get stuck in certain practices and so forth that take them around and around the mountain. So to know that there are landmarks and to know what to look for doesn't mean you're going to see everything that everybody else saw, but you will see some of the things that some people saw before, and that uh, helps to orientate you on this quest. So the first stage I call the awakening of faith. And this is the stage of discovering that there is such a thing as a spiritual path, and at least having enough curiosity uh, aroused to go investigate what it is. And that there is a spiritual path is not obvious to us, uh, to anybody, in any culture, in any tradition. Because as uh, Krishna tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, all creatures enter delusion at birth. We are born into delusion. And you'll find this, um, the same idea expressed in different traditions in different ways, but it's basically the same idea. In the Christian tradition, according to Genesis, Christian and Jewish, and uh, uh, Islam, by the way, we are created in the image of God. And what this means, then, is that we are literally imaginary forms of God. But we don't know that. That's our original sin. That's what happened with the fall. We think uh, we are real forms, not imaginary forms of God, but real forms uh, that exist in their own right. So we are born into a delusion, into ignorance. Some traditions um, describe this, many, many traditions, as being born into a kind of a dream, a dream state. Now, this is common in the East, you know, that this world is seen as Maya, like a dream. The Buddha talks about this world as like a mirage, like a magic trick, like a dream. But it's also true in the West. Here's the great Kabbalist, Moses de Leon. He wrote, One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the errors and falsehoods abide forever. And no one sees and no one hears and no one awakens, for they are all asleep. For a deep sleep from God has fallen upon them, so they do not question, and they do not read, and they do not search out. So there's a, this image that we are born into this dream, and we don't know we're dreaming. We're just like in a regular dream at night. You're in the middle of the dream. Normally, you don't know you're dreaming, and so you're pursuing all these goals within the dream and so forth, and you have no idea of the real nature of your experience. And then it's also important to remember that being born into this condition of delusion, of ignorance, of dreaming, is itself suffering. It does cause more suffering in the future, but it itself is suffering. Because to be identified with a limited form in this dream is automatically to feel cut off, separated, alienated, isolated from the rest of the cosmos. And so we already have a sort of existential loneliness and alienation. And then because we see that all the forms in the dream are impermanent and they're all going to eventually vanish and we are identified with one particular one, that fact of impermanence uh, terrifies us because it means that we are going to somehow disappear. So already we're born into loneliness and fear in this condition. But it also 
uh, happens that we know something's wrong intuitively. In our, our deepest consciousness, our deepest wisdom, we know something's wrong. And so what happens? We are born seeking happiness. And we know that happiness is possible, that this condition somehow in it, ultimately. Otherwise, we wouldn't seek happiness. And so everybody's born is convinced that there is some way to become happy. The problem, of course, is when you're born into delusion, you think that happiness comes by grasping and holding on to these uh, dream forms. And of course, all the dream forms are ephemeral and they all vanish away. So you're constantly being disappointed. So you're constantly suffering. And so this way of seeking is futile. But the instinct to seek and the intuition that there is a happiness to seek is genuine and spiritual. And it gives us a clue to our, our true nature. Now, in secular uh, society, the kind of society that we live in, uh, most people find it hard to believe the mystics when they say, look, there is another way of seeking happiness. That this way of seeking happiness through trying to uh, grasp on and hold on to worldly things, to things in this dream world, uh, is futile. It's not going to work. But there is another way. And uh, particularly in a secular society, it's very hard to believe that because this dream world seems so real to us. It seems so real. But this is true even in sacred societies. And by sacred society, I mean a society whose worldview has incorporated into it uh, at least uh, an arrow, at least something that points to a transcendent realm beyond this realm of impermanent forms. So, for instance, here's uh, the Taoist, the great Taoist Cheng Su, writing how many centuries ago? Millennium ago. He says, in reality, both I and you are a dream. Nay, the very fact that I am telling you that you are dreaming is itself a dream. This kind of statement is liable to be labeled bizarre sophistry, but it looks so precisely because it reveals the truth. Only when one experiences a great awakening does one realize that reality is but a big dream, but the ignorant imagine that they are actually awake. How deep-rooted and irre irremediable their ignorance is. Now, this is a wonderful mirror kind of teaching. If you think about it, what mystics are saying is, what I'm saying is, right now, we're in a dream. Just like we were asleep at night. We're all in a dream. It's very difficult to accept that, isn't it? If you're honest with yourself, it's very difficult to accept that. This is why it usually requires two catalysts for an individual to really start to take the mystics seriously. Two things that happen in their lives personally to them. Not a matter of philosophy, not a matter of reading about it, but actual experience, usually. The first is some sort of crisis that comes in your life, and the second is guidance. So what kind of crises are we talking about? Some sort of crises that shows you the futility of worldly seeking. So even if you don't believe there's anything else, you begin to realize, gee, this is like knocking my head against the wall. It just isn't going to work. And the classic example of this is Siddhartha, the future Buddha. Does everybody know the story of Siddhartha? He grew up in this uh, luxurious palace and his, 
He was an overprotected child. His parents didn't let him see any suffering or any signs of sickness or anything like that. And as a young man, he, he escapes this palace and he goes out in the world and he sees an old man, a sick man, and a corpse. And his charioteer uh, tells him that this is the condition that everybody ends up in. And he's horrified and he comes back to the palace and all the joys he had before, he had dancing girls and he had a wonderful life and a family life and all that and uh, all the luxuries you can imagine, uh, no, he could no longer take pleasure in them because he couldn't get this out of his mind that this is all passing. There's nothing permanent here. And eventually he's going to grow old and he's going to get sick and he's going to die. So he saw the futility of uh, his life and it haunted him. He couldn't get over it. So this is a personal insight, a personal experience. This is a, a crisis. And this is what I'm talking about, an example of this crisis. This is what uh, Jesus meant when he said, whoever has known the world has found a corpse, and whoever has found a corpse, of him the world is not worthy. In other words, at a certain point, after you've lived in the world for a while, you begin to realize it's a corpse. It's a corpse, not because it's a corpse right now, but that's its destiny. Everything in the world's destiny is to become a corpse. And then the clue here is once you've had that realization, then the corpse is uh, no longer worthy of you. You've got uh, now too much knowledge. You've got too much wisdom. And so you can no longer uh, participate. Uh, this crisis can unfold on a scale ranging between a kind of slow exhaustion of meaning and purpose in your life, a kind of world weariness, or it can be rather dramatic, like a big wake-up call. So a good example of the slow exhaustion is uh, Tolstoy. The, the Tolstoy, the great Russian writer, he wrote a little book, if you ever get a chance to read it, it's worth reading, called Tolstoy's Confessions or something like that, My Confessions. And he describes his spiritual conversion in that book. And this was a period of time uh, in his life when he had become recognized as a great writer. He was one of the uh, few writers that recognized in their own lifetime. He was lionized by European uh, intellectuals. He, had, he was very wealthy, made a lot of money. He had a big daca someplace out in the country and servants and everything, you know. And he was at the, the height of his fame and his fortune. And just all the meaning drained out of his life. And he describes that he had to tell his servants to hide all the ropes in his house because he was so depressed he was afraid he would commit suicide. He'd hang himself. And meanwhile, there's a footnote in this and says that he was writing, I've forgotten, one of his great books, Anna Karina or War and Peace. Uh, but he's going on writing this, but in his own personal life, it's all, uh, it's all turned to dust. It doesn't have any savor for him, any meaning for him. And so he's in this deep despair, suicidal despair. And then he starts to notice the peasants that live on his property and around him. Dirt poor, simple, uneducated people. <coughs> but they're happy. They have a zest for life and they have a confidence and a faith in life and so forth. And he begins to realize that it comes from their religion. The simple religion, they go to church, you know, and so forth, but uh, that they live their lives in the context of this religious worldview. And he begins to envy these peasants. And then slowly but surely, he starts to become religious himself. And he starts to go to church or whatever, and then he starts having his own spiritual experiences. And his whole life turned around, and he became quite a spiritual person. 
So here's an example of this, a, a slower process here of a, of a, a world weariness and then getting to that state of just nothing has any meaning for him anymore and then this slow turnaround. Uh, Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita is an example of this sudden wake-up call. Arjuna is this uh, warrior and he's uh, a prince and he's a leader uh, of this army and he gets in a position where he has to fight a civil war and he has to fight his, uh, on the other side, his relatives and friends and so forth. And in this crisis brought about by this very dramatic situation, he realizes he can't win. If he wins the war, he's killed all his friends and relatives, so what will be the, the uh, happiness in that victory? And of course, if he loses, he loses. So he comes to this crisis where he just throws down his weapons and he says, forget it, I'm not going to participate in this anymore. Uh, Catherine of Genoa, whom I just quoted a little while ago, uh, is a, uh, she represents a sort of a combination of both. She was, uh, came from an aristocratic family in Genoa in the 15th century, and they married her off to uh, another aristocrat. And the ten, first 10 years of their marriage, I think she was 14 when she got married, she was very unhappy because she was leading this aristocratic life with all these luxuries and so forth, but it just didn't mean anything to her. And she went through these depressions and withdrew from society, and her family urged her to go out and become more social and so forth. And then finally, uh, she went to a church one day. She was so depressed, she couldn't even take confession. But her sister or somebody urged her to go see this guy who was supposed to be very holy, this priest or monk or whatever, just for a blessing. And she went and she got the blessing. And suddenly she had this just a tremendous experience of the love of God. And it just, uh, it just enraptured her. It just changed her life. And from that moment on, she abandoned the world. She said in her mind, no more world, no more sin. And she went on a mystical path and started leading a mystical life. So in modern terms, many people in our day go on a spiritual path if they have a brush with uh, death or something or a serious illness. You know, often cancer is a sort of wake-up call for people. Hey, you don't have much time left and, you know, what are you doing with your life? Or it could be a serious divorce or uh, a dramatic uh, job, uh, losing your job, your career. You know, a lot of things. It doesn't have to be um, a war to necessarily put you on a spiritual path. So, but it's usually takes some sort of crisis where you yourself come to a point where you just can no longer uh, live in the old way for whatever reason. Now, this is a usually very painful experience, but actually it's a blessing in disguise. It's really a kind of grace. You might call it the first grace that happens to you on a spiritual path. And it has to do with the, the frustration of your will. That your will has been frustrated. You've wanted to go forward in this direction, forward, 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 and now you come to a place where you can't. And it's that frustration of the individual personal will that opens you to the second catalyst. And without that, most people don't get opened, unless it is a totally spontaneous form of grace. So, and we want to note this because you're going to see on a spiritual path, uh, each stage has, repeats the same pattern of uh, advancing and then coming to a place where you're stymied. You can't go any farther. And that opens you really to the next stage. So the next, uh, the next catalyst you need in this mix here is guidance. And the reason uh, you need guidance is because without guidance, uh, you're very likely to succumb to cynicism. And I think we probably all know people in our lives who 
grew up idealistic or whatever, or, you know, uh, they're full of uh, vim and vigor and they're going to take the world by storm and so forth, and they learn these lessons that the Buddha learned and Catherine learned and so forth, that it ain't what it was cracked up to be. And that they're never going to attain happiness pursuing these dream forms. And they realize happiness is impossible. But they have no idea of any other way to go. And so they just become cynical. And often, uh, you know, they take a perverse delight in pointing out uh, how stupid other people are to expect happiness or whatever. And it's interesting how seductive that is. Because cynics possess half a truth. And we recognize it. Uh, we actually uh, kind of like to be around cynics sometimes because we feel like they're, you know, they're cutting through the bullshit, right? They're telling you how it is. And they do possess half a truth, but it's only half a truth. And without that guidance, you're likely to fall into that. Now, guidance can come in many forms. Again, it can be something very dramatic, like a divine, direct communication. Or it can be a serendipitous encounter of some sort. And again, there are examples uh, from the great traditions. The Buddha, after seeing the old man, the sick man, and the corpse, then saw a monk wandering around. And he, so he asked his charioteer, he says, who's that guy? And the monk says, oh, that's a renunciate who's off to find enlightenment and escape this wheel of samsara. So this was an opening. Uh, something happened in his life that showed him, oh, there might be another way to go. And, and in fact, that's what he did. He went and followed this guy's example. He became a monk. Uh, Tolstoy noticed the peasants. If he hadn't noticed the peasants, he might have just ended up being, you know, a degenerate drug addict or something. But he, he noticed the peasants in his life, that there were people who seemed to have a kind of happiness that he couldn't imagine. Catherine's had this experience of this direct divine love, just entering her life and just sweeping her away. And then the uh, story of Arjuna. When Arjuna threw down his weapons, at that moment his charioteer uh, reveals that he's a manifestation of Krishna and starts to teach him on the spot. So he gives him all these teachings. Just at that moment of crisis, just at the moment when he's open to it, then he can receive the teachings and the guidance. Sometimes guidance comes in the form of dreams or visions. I mean, this happened to me. Uh, if you've read my book, you know that uh, the, really the beginning of my path was this dream of Athena, who gave me this sword, which was the sword of truth. Now, it's interesting, I picked out another example. There are many examples in the traditions. I keep running across them. I keep being amazed. Uh, because when this dream happened to me, I thought it was totally unique. I thought I was maybe going a little crazy. You know, this was really bizarre. Here's Longchenpa, the great Dzogchen master I mentioned. And in the early days of his path, he had a vision of a woman who gave him a jewel crown and said, from now on, I shall always bestow my blessings upon you and grant you powers. And remember what I said about this uh, in the, among the Carib shamans, that uh, on the first rungs of this ladder, the female water spirit appears and gives the candidate uh, formulas and charms and becomes their guide. See, this is, this is Athena. I mean, this, this woman gets around, you know. And she's not even tradition-specific. She shows up in the clothing of the tradition, but she's an archetype. So again, this is an example of how you can actually plot stages and landmarks on this path, because they keep showing up in tradition after tradition. Often this guidance comes really as just a form of a kind of a showing, like a, a taste of some other 
presence or some transcendent dimension or some realm beyond this dream realm. It's like something breaks through. Here's how Simone Weil describes this. Simone Weil was a contemporary mystic uh, in this century. And she had grown up early in the century and she had no interest in mysticism or religion or anything like that. She'd been interested in politics, radical politics, socialist politics. And she'd gone to Spain during the Spanish Civil War and uh, she'd uh, helped fight in Spain. And uh, of course, the whole venture was a disaster. The, the, um, the Republicans lost, the fascists won in Spain. And meantime, she suffered these uh, quite severe burns. So her, her family whisked her out of there and they sent her someplace in France to recuperate. So here's a place where she's in crisis. You know, the dream of the, the socialist Spain has gone down the tubes and you know, here she is trying to recover from these burns and whatnot. And here's what she does, how she describes what happened to her. She says, in a moment of intense physical suffering, when I was forcing myself to love, but without desiring to give a name to that love, I felt without being in any way prepared for it, for I had never read the mystical writers, a presence more personal, more certain, more real than that of a human being, although inaccessible to the senses or the imagination. So in, again, in the state of crisis and, and contemplation and so forth, she suddenly feels this breakthrough of something there, something that she knows is real. She can taste it. Uh, guidance may come in a very mundane form in a period of crisis. So let's say you're going through a divorce or something like that, and some friend just may give you a book to read uh, or may introduce you to a teacher or something like that. You know, Now, in any other situation, you wouldn't have been interested in the book, even if you'd read it. But now you read it, now you're open to it. Suddenly it starts to speak to you. So it doesn't have to be all that dramatic. It can be just a, a real a little uh, synchronistic event. And usually, though, you'll recognize that synchronicity. You'll start to recognize, oh, why did this come to me at this moment in time? And that's the beginning of this key that this guidance will be available to you through the whole rest of the path, not at every moment but it'll keep re-entering at different stages. So I call this first stage the awakening of faith because in spite of receiving guidance, you still need faith because at this point, you don't know where this guidance is coming from usually. And it's very easy to uh, doubt yourself afterwards, even if you have a very powerful experience of some divine presence entering your life or whatever. And then time goes on and, you know, it starts to fade as a memory and uh, everybody around you, particularly in this culture, the, if you tell anybody, they're going to attribute to your imagination or whatever, you know, and you, you'll start to doubt yourself. So right from the get-go, you need that faith. And in this case, faith means acting on it immediately. And acting may not be actually going on doing something, but not letting it go, not letting it just fade into memory, not uh, starting to doubt your own experience. Faith as I've said many times, of course, for mystics, is not belief in some sort of uh, dogma or doctrine. Uh, mystics do have doctrines, but mystics always say you must test these doctrines, these teachings. Faith in uh, mysticism is a dynamic faith. And it's just the kind of faith that you might have in a professor, a physics professor at a university. You, you go there, you assume the person knows what they're talking about, and you walk in the first day and they got all sorts of formulas on the board and you don't understand a thing that's going on. But you assume that they know what they're talking about. You assume those formulas make sense. But most importantly, you assume that at the end of this course, you're going to know. You won't have to take your professor's word for it anymore. And this is the whole point of a mystical path. 
that you uh, that these teachings you make your own through experimenting with them, which is why we call the center the Center for Sacred Sciences, very much like a science. And then it's very important to remember that mystics insist that ultimately you have to get over faith. You have to give up faith. Faith is not the end and the goal. Faith is just a bridge and a means. The goal is gnosis. The goal is certainty, your own certainty. And by the way, that's very important because sometimes people say, well, how do I know I'm enlightened? Well, you're the only one who can know you're enlightened. No one else can. And in some traditions, you go and the Zen master, uh, you know, confirms your enlightenment. That's only for the purpose of the tradition and uh, the seal of approval to teach. It has no, it's not, there's no confirmation to the individual that they say, oh, well, now my Zen master told me I'm enlightened, so I must be enlightened. If, if, that's, if that, any of those thoughts arise, you definitely are not enlightened, guaranteed, positive. You know whether your Zen master gives you uh, any seal or not. You must attain certainty on this path. A certainty, and that sounds, again, something that was so radical that people say, well, I don't know, could you ever be certain about anything? Well, yes, you could be. Here's what Simone Weil says. In what concerns divine things, belief is not fitting. Only certainty will do. Anything less than certainty is unworthy of God. Wonderful way to put that. Anything less than certainty is unworthy of God, because God is absolute. It's very important to have this faith in yourself, and we could call it a confidence. And that means very specifically trusting your experiences. And you're going to be tested because we all grow up in a society with particular worldviews and particular ways of seeing the world that we have been trained uh, to do. We've been socialized into these worldviews from the time we're very little. And our experience often runs counter to that conventional wisdom, conventional knowledge. And when it does, normally we either censor it out or we ignore it or we say, well, that's just imagination. And the whole point about the mystical path is all you have to rely on uh, ultimately is your own experience. The teachings are a guide to that experience and so forth. But it's your experience. You have to trust your experience, even if it flies in the face of conventional wisdom and conventional knowledge. That's hard for a lot of people to do. So you really need that deep faith in that. And then finally, this first stage of the awakening of faith requires courage. This journey is a journey into the unknown, into a mystery. That's why it's called mysticism. And you cannot know the end until you get there. So you're going to the unknown, you're entering the unknown, and it's like climbing this mountain that's uh, enshrouded in clouds. The top is enshrouded in clouds. You don't know what's there until you get there. But also along the way, sometimes the fog comes in and you can't see five steps in front of you, and you won't know where you're going. So courage is very important. This is why Lali Shwari, great Kashmir uh, saint, talks about the beginning of her path, she says, Where have I come from? What road have I traveled? Which way am I going? I don't know the way, yet here I stand, with courage, hoping to grasp the knowledge of the truth. That's a wonderfully uh, put, this attitude of openness, of uh, not knowing, but having the courage and the determination to go pursue for yourself the truth here. So, 
uh, in this first stage, this is awakening to the fact, just the fact that there is another way to seek happiness and that the way that you've been going is uh, not leading any, anywhere. The next step is uh, to go out and find what this way might be. So you set out investigating it. And I think particularly in our culture, we don't uh, necessarily know that there is another way. Uh, even if you have some personal experience of guidance, all sorts of questions remain open because we aren't brought up in one particular tradition. So what, would you, what should you do? Should you become a Buddhist? Should you become a Hindu? Should you become a Sufi? Where should you go? What should you look for? And that's the beginning of the next stage, investigation of teachings, which we'll talk about next time. So any questions or comments? Is this um, the guidance, you know, I said it was female. Is that uh, kind of sex-specific in terms of men get female guidance and women get male guidance? Or is there... You know, it's hard to say. I haven't made enough of a study to give any sort of definitive answer. I must say, because Athena appeared to me, it's like noticing for sale signs when you're looking for a house. Do you know what I mean? So that's what I happen to notice. Very often, though, men have like visions of a Christ or Sufis will have a dreams of Muhammad or Qadir is a big guide for Sufis who's a male character. So I don't know if, if they're really, you know, if, if it's more likely that women appear to men than men appear to women aspirants or, or if it's just, uh, you know, doesn't really make any difference. But I just happen to notice the ones where it's so similar to my experience. Uh, but if somebody who was investigating, for instance, archetypes and uh, had that as a uh, you know, long-range project, I think that would be something to look at and look for. Like I tell you, Fred's <laughs> investigating archetypes, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> yeah. So would you say that you could, uh, if you found yourself getting cynical, you could say, well, I'm lacking guidance here and do something about seeking guidance. Yes, if you could catch yourself. Unfortunately, one of the things about cynicism is cynics tend to think they know it all and aren't really open <laughs> to guidance. No, it's true. I mean, but if you, if you were sensitive and you found yourself becoming cynical and it bothered you, yes, that would be a, that itself could be a catalyst. Do you know what I mean? It could be, a, be bring about an internal crisis. You don't like yourself anymore. You don't like how you're behaving to people and uh, your attitude, you know. It can be something generated uh, from that sort of internal evaluation of where you are at. Yeah. I can remember having burning desires to <clears throat> find out where I was in the spiritual path and wanting to look at it literally, you know, almost like a monopoly board. I don't even know where I am right now. And I would fantasize going to a teacher like yourself and saying, okay, so where am I? I never actually did it, though, but I had that desire to find out, where am I? Um, but now I, I noticed that um, that desire is kind of dwindling away. Like it, I'm not even thinking of it in linear terms anymore. Perhaps that's indicative of some stage. I don't know about other teachers, but I do sometimes look at people in that way. But I uh, almost never discuss it because I think it's very damaging for the yeah. for the student. Now, 
again, there are dangers as with any teaching. Just like you say, you can become very attached to the stage you're in or, or trying to, uh, to either take pride in the stage you're in or uh, becoming very upset because you're not moving along fa as fast as you think you should be. And you can also use this uh, subtly to evaluate yourself against other people. In and a prideful way. In a prideful way, exactly. So, you know, these thoughts can sneak in. Oh, well, I'm more, look at that person. I'm more advanced to them and so forth. So it can, you know, it can be uh, anything on the spiritual path, any teaching can be seized by the ego and taken over. And uh, you can try to use it for the ego's purposes. It's sometimes valuable for a student, knowing certain stages, periodically to sort of, Try to evaluate where you are just in terms of what you might want to work on. If you find, for instance, that um, you've been going along and you're doing really well in your meditative practice, but uh, if you read other mystics they, and, and see it in terms of stages, you sometimes can give you a clue, you know. You, at a certain point, you'll be doing your meditation, your practice, and you'll start running across these Dzogchen teachings, for instance. And you can match it against your own experience. If you've developed real meditative stability, you know, and you, and you find you're having to struggle with visualizations and stuff, well, maybe you're at the point where you should drop all that effort and struggle. So in that sense, they can be helpful. The, the big thing that uh, you want to avoid is judging, judging yourself or judging others based on this. If you use it as a map, that's great. Yeah. Uh, in, in the talk also, you mentioned like if someone goes through a crisis, uh, be it illness or uh, whatever, and then someone hands them like a book or, you know, they hear of it. Now you're talking about, are you saying there is, a beyond thing that leads someone to do this, or just the the kind of the uh, harmony between what one is in the state and what's being given to them. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's very well put. Actually, that's about that's the way Jung basically described synchronicity. This is a Jungian term, the psychologist Carl Jung, and he described it a, a meaningful event. Oh, I forgot the exact definition, but a meaningful event that's inexplicable in physical terms of physical law. But one way to describe it is um, a a constant violation of probabilities. If you were a mathematician, you you might want to describe it that way. You know, things start happening to you that are meaningful, have that sense of harmony, and you might dismiss one or two as coincidence, accidents. You know. But they start to happen with such frequency and they, and they have such depth of meaning to you that you can no longer explain them to yourself anyway by writing them off as just probability. And sometimes it, it'll violate your own rational mind, you know, your, your rational mind say this couldn't be. But uh, that's why I say you have to trust your experience on this path. And if you start trusting your experience, you, you start to see the world differently. <clears throat> but I, I'm not sure... If I fully understood Odila's question. Wasn't there a part of that that you asked that was this, was there a greater force causing right. this to happen yes, too? Yeah. You, and I'm a little confused. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed that part. So well, I was saying this, what happens is this due to something beyond that's leading this to happen or is it because of the significant, you know, or the harmony or, you know, how, how it, or the, the way it rhymes with what's going on? I think if it's helpful to posit a force, a greater force, 
which is the traditional way, particularly in Judaism, Christianity, and in Islam, to yeah. posit that, yeah. uh, that's, that can be very helpful as an interim way of thinking about it, conceiving of it. But I think the ultimate um, explanation of this is there is no difference between the inside and the outside. And in, in point of fact, everything is moving together already as one harmony. We see it in a disjointed way. But more and more on a spiritual path, you begin to experience and see it for yourself as one movement. So there is nothing then that is meaningless. Do you know what I mean? And truly speaking, there's nothing that is random. It's another interesting, I know you're interested in science, but it's another interesting thing if you want to investigate. randomness is actually very, very difficult, in fact, impossible to define mathematically or logically. It's a, it's a funny term. Uh, and we say it all the time, oh, that's just a random event. This is just random. But if you really examine randomness logically, you can never g- get a hold of what it is. It, it isn't anything, you know. It's really a way of our saying we're ignorant. So uh, that, that sense that the world is made up of random, meaningless events starts to evaporate because you begin to see, I mean, just to use an artistic image, if you saw a dancer dancing behind some sort of screen where you see a, their hand here and then this would be blocked out and you'd see the elbow moving here, do you know what I mean? And it might look like six or seven pieces moving against this black backdrop because you couldn't see how they were connected. But as you start to remove the, the slatted screen, you start to see it's all really one dance. So there's no, the problem of how does the foot relate to the hand only occurs when you can't see what's going on. When you can see what's going on, the question doesn't even arise. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Could you say a little bit more about confidence? I know you don't use the, the term uh, self-confidence, but if we're to have confidence in our experience um, to maybe approach this certainty that, that Simone Weil talks about. You know, I'm not real clear on, on confidence. On do, do, do we build it? Do we gain it? Do, or is it just there? Um, First of all, I don't, I don't mind using self-confidence, particularly when talking about this stage of the path. And this is a good example of how a teaching can be stage-specific. Uh, I don't even actually, this stage of the path, you could even talk about self-esteem. That's a term I, I dislike, self-esteem. Self-confidence, I don't have any problem with. Uh, self-esteem, to me, the way I hear it used, and what it means to me is building images of yourself, where confidence is much more concrete. It just comes out of experience. And a, a combination of, I would say, off the top of my head, three things. Faith, experience, and courage. And there's an element in having confidence uh, that requires courage because each situation is going to be new. You don't, you don't speak about having confidence that you can, if you've been working on a computer for five years, that you, you approach your computer and say, I have confidence I can do this. Because you've already been doing it for five years. It doesn't require a great amount of confidence. But if you're approaching it fresh, new, and somebody's going to teach you, you know, and you have computer phobia and all that, Somebody says, well, you know, you've done other things in your life. To have confidence, you'll be able to master this. Do you see what I mean? And that's, that is very closely related to faith. It's based on a, your past experience that you have been able to master any things, but there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to master this thing. Do you see what I mean? So it requires an element of faith. And then it is based on 
past experience. And the experience part is cumulative. In other words, the, you can build confidence. And the way you do that is by trying something in small increments. You know, do this. Oh, you realize you can do it. And then you bite off a little bit more and you realize you can do that and you bite off a little bit more, you know. And that builds, that tends to build our confidence. And our confidence in, in terms of one particular task or area or field, but also generally our confidence in life. And, and this is not strictly or exclusively spiritual. You know, this is a good way, I think, to bring up kids, you know, build their confidence by giving them little challenges and letting them work it out and solve it and so forth. I think it's, you know. Well, confidence then is a very, a very practical term then too. It is. I mean, you know, I've, uh, you know, reached this age and I, I look at what could I do now in this world, you know, and, and if I think about being a physician, I don't have the confidence about being a physician. I mean, I've measured what I've done and where I'm at and what it would take to get there, and I don't feel that confidence. So it's very a practical term too. It's not. It is spiritual, and like you know, you can do anything. That I know, but spiritual life is very practical. I mean, this is the this is the point of bringing in a word like confidence, because if you just talk about faith. It sounds a little wee, but this is faith in a in mystical sense is very related to confidence. It is, and that's why I say that one aspect of faith is faith in your own experience. In that sense, faith in yourself. Ultimately, you can talk about faith in the sense that all the mystics say, look, the key is in you. And the, the only place you uh, can ever find ultimate wisdom is in you. It's already in you. Have confidence that that is true. Have faith that that is true. And, and go look, you see? So it's a word that connects a very high teaching to very practical matters, like have confidence that you can meditate. We have this video um, on Sonsonima, a Korean Zen master, and there's an interview with one of his uh, Western students. And the guy says, the first time he heard about Sonsonim, he was giving a sashin, an all-day sit, where you sit for, you know, half an hour and walk for 15 minutes and sit or whatever. And he said before he would join, sign up for to go to the sashin, he went home and he sat down and he tried to sit for half an hour to make sure he could do it. And then he had the confidence. When he realized he could, then he went and signed up. He said, I figure if I can sit for half an hour, I can do this all day, you know, with walking in between. I'll, I'll get through it. So he went to his own experience realized he could do it, and that gave him the confidence to take the next step, you see. And a lot of a spiritual path is like that, anything in life, but particularly spiritual path, you know. That's a, that's a very practical example. Some people are terrified of meditating, the idea you can meditate for half an hour. I could never sit still for half an hour. I know I could just never do that. Well, one way to build the confidence is sit still for five minutes, then extend the time for 10 minutes, then 15 minutes, you know. And ultimately, you, most people find they don't have any problems sitting still for half an hour. A lot of it has to do with confidence. Is that helpful? Mm -hmm. All right, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? You're welcome to hang around and have some tea and check out the library. Until I see you again, peace to you all.